Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with Jonathan David Church. Uh, Jonathan is an economist and an author, and he's also written for the Good Men Project. You can also find his stuff at Aereo, Colette, Arc, Digi, for, and uh, among others. And he was nice enough to come on today to talk about his new book, Reinventing Racism, Why White Fragility is the Wrong Way to Think About Racial Inequality. Hi Jonathan, thank you for coming on. Hi, thanks for having me, Obey. like to start by talking about your book. Um, yeah. Because I, I, I saw, it, I think I read a piece in Aereo about it, and this was when I was just coming out. So I was, and I just finished, I think, about eighteen months of reading nothing but critical race theory and intersectionality, or almost nothing but. And so I said, okay, I want to order this book, and I ordered it, pre-ordered it, and then it arrived, and I just went right through it. It was so. If you could like talk a little bit about how you got in, like why you wrote it. And then, you know, some of the stuff you're talking about in there, and then we can just go from there. I started, I, I actually have posted an article or two on Twitter in which I referred to white fragility peripherally um, in articles I wrote, I think, maybe as early as 2016 and 17. <clears throat> so I had heard of it. Um, but I was starting to write about social justice somewhere around six, two, well, not somewhere, in two, 2016. Um, and that was for the Good Men Project. Um, and uh, I was reading, writing a, a weekly column. And um, some of them, you know, were uh, sympathetic to concerns of, uh, you know, more progressive concerns. Um, you know, whether it's about discriminatory job advertisements or sexist language or whatever, Me Too and so on, and others more critical. Um, so I, I was skeptical of the notion of microaggressions and, and so on. Anyway, um, mid-2018, I wrote an article uh, that just suggested that maybe confirmation bias was a problem for social justice activism. Sometimes there's a tendency to... Um, to think, see things like white privilege or other things where it really isn't necessarily being, is not really operating. I mean, in other words, we, we see what we want to see. Um, and, uh, you know, not really saying anything definitively, or just saying that it's not just particular to social justice. More generally, you want to be con conscious of being, of, you know, um, seeing what you want to see as opposed to what's there, um, uh, which is not to ignore some deep philosophical issues about uh, perception, but anyway, um, I sent this article to uh, somebody uh, who is very active in social justice, uh, well, activism, and the response I got was, you know, why are you so fragile when um, talking about privilege or, you know, any of this stuff, you know? And I, I didn't really understand why this, how this was showing fragility. And so I attempted to, you know, I kind of, I don't really remember the nature of the exchange, but basically when I was essentially trying to defend my position, the only response I kept getting was that I was being fragile. Um, and so then, you know, essentially I was referred to uh, D'Angelo's work. Um, and the, um, the immediate uh, thought that came to mind was that, um, White fragility was like the new bourgeois, uh, and that's going back to, um, you know, China in the 50s or 60s, you know, when, you know, having read some of the literature or nonfiction stuff, biographies, biographies of people and lived through that, basically, like, somebody who was, you know, a supposed capitalist would have to confess all their sins, and any time they attempted to defend their this or that, you know, it was essentially a bourgeois defense and so on. And that, that, that was the connection I made. And um, so I started investigating the theory, and a couple of weeks later, I wrote, a, wrote an article that was published in Colette, um, essentially making that, that point, uh, referencing some of the implicit bias literature. Um, and then from there, I started really getting more into the whiteness literature, critical race theory, and so on, but particularly focused on white fragility theory. Um, so a couple months later, I, I wrote a long article in Aereo about some of the epistemological problems, and then another article in Archigi about, uh, you know, using a Jeopardy episode as D'Angelo uh, does um, to illustrate white racial agility. It just sort of take, took on a life of its own. I wrote, you know, over a dozen articles or whatever. 
and eventually that just became the basis for the book. There was also an article recently that just came out in Colette that touches on some of the stuff in your book. In some ways, I don't want to break it down to statistics, but when you actually look at the statistics, South Asian South Asians do better in general than white men. You know, like uh, East Asians do better in general than white men. It's a weird way to set up a racist system. You know, I read the book. I have read a lot of this stuff, and it just flies in the face of like any data that's out there. So you can acknowledge that there's sexism. You can acknowledge that there's racism. You could acknowledge everything in the past. You could acknowledge the fact that due to Jim Crow, due to things like the GI Bill not being extended to black, you know, returning black soldiers, uh, you know, due to redlining, due to all this, there is a lack of wealth in black communities, you know, like the communities descendants of slaves. And because people, you know, then you point out like Nigerians and all that, but it's, so you can point all that out, but instead of actually going looking for the cause and trying to fix it, there's certainty that it's racism. I think it's this has been for like the last 25 years at least. Any policy that's trying to deal with this has gone in looking at it saying, this is racist, we're going to get rid of the racism, and that's going to fix the poverty. I don't know. It's it's to, In my mind, it's doing a detriment to what you're trying to fix. Like if you're trying to lift up impoverished neighborhoods and you're saying it's only the cause of racism, so let's go fix racism, but all you're showing is disparity. Like, like how do you, how do they reconcile that, <laughs> or how do you think they reconcile that? Uh, so, I guess is the uh, the question is, I guess um, you can acknowledge that there are disparities, and at least this is the way I see it. So, this is how I'm reading the question: is you can cert- uh, acknowledge the obvious disparities, and then the question is. Um, uh, you know what to do about it, but um, in the attempt to answer the question, what to do about it, are we, in some sense, handicapping or putting a handicap on our uh, attempts to address the problem by essentially attributing it to quote-unquote racism, um, or just simply describing it as racism? Um, is that sort of what you're getting at? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's. I mean, she. I mean, D'Angelo says it straight out in her book. It's not did racism manifest. It's how did racism manifest in it. So, all situations are inherently racist. And then, I mean, I mean, it's not. You know, so like, if if you focus just on racism, and it's like, okay, well, all those laws are gone. Everything's gone. You know, there's a disparity, but it's it could be because the neighborhood's impoverished, and you need you know, an influx of money or something, but it, you can't just say racism because you're going to be, it's, it's a red herring. Yeah, so um, in a sense, this is really the, the point behind the title of the book, which is Reinventing Racism. Um, I'd say that, uh, I guess, in critical race theory and related fields, I guess, I don't know if they'd call it an innovation or, or simply trying to develop new framework to understand but essentially um racism is not uh just discrimination and and bigotry but it's um sort of transcends that it's part of a broader reality it's uh structural relationships between groups and society and that um that uh you know it's an ism you know and it's not it's not a um uh, necessarily an act towards uh, a uh, discriminatory act towards uh, as Sam to use uh, Sam Cronin's de- definition of one of his articles an identifiable up other. Um, so um, I sort of call it reinventing racism. Um, that is, uh, if you look at you know I just had a letter exchange about so-called you know colorblind ideology of colorblind racism. Um, as you note, D'Angelo is essentially saying we see racial di- disparities, therefore we have racism. That's essentially the way in Ibran Ker- Kendi says it, you know, that where I see disparities, I see racism. Um, and so it's a, what I call reinventing racism in the sense that instead of, as I would do, distinguishing between racism, which is you know, essentially discrimination uh, on the basis of race. 
um, distinguishing between racism and the legacy of racism. So when I hear uh, a lot of talk about systemic racism or structural racism or so on, I'm thinking about the legacy of racism as opposed to simply defining that as racism. I mean, I don't want to go off into a long tangent, but I can imagine people taking issue with that and saying that, um, you know, doesn't necessarily get us anywhere, but I think it does because um, if you uh, talk about systemic racism and structural racism as simply the reality of racial disparities, um, and then you get into how, you know, the way that people within the field talk about it in terms of colorblindness and ideology and ultimately what's called whiteness, um, you get into a lot of ambiguity about what the nature of this system is. And I think is what you're trying to get at is uh, what it ends up obscuring um, the hard thinking that you need to do about policy. Now, as I'm saying this, I, you know, sort of thinking faster than I'm saying, because I, I, can, I, I can anticipate lots of objections from you know, those within critical race theory. And you know, that is why I sometimes prefer to write rather than because, you know, I assemble it all together. But, but basically my point is that you get into a lot of ambiguities. And one of the essential features of structural racism within the critical race theory is called whiteness, reified whiteness. Um, and the problem is, is, as one historian says, Eric Arsner, that it, be, it ends up becoming a blank screen onto which any people project their own meanings. And so you have this very ambiguous term, which is supposed to explain racial inequalities, you know, the white racial frame, white norms and habits. And you can see that there's some sensibility to this if you look at it in terms of like legal institutions. And I get into this in the final chapter of the book. Um, but I'll just say at this point, there's a lot of ambiguity there. And I don't think it helps us in terms of developing effective policies, one of which would be as I discuss in the book, differentiating between preferential affirmative action and developmental affirmative action. And that's actually Glenn Lowry's distinction, um, where preferential is sort of what we typically think of in terms of, you know, um, quotas or, or preferential treatment or whatever. And developmental affirmative action, which is, I think, what is essentially what you're getting at, which is that um, you... Uh, want to develop um, a more uh, comprehensive plan to address resource um, deficiencies in communities uh, where the resources are needed. And obviously, you know, that involves things like resident, uh, you know, housing, education, basically the development of social capital. Um, and I'm all for that. Of course, I would I would emphasize, as with anything, whether it's like infrastructure bills that Congress has been debating for decades and or years at least, um, that you know the, the complications are in the details. So it's not going to be easy. But in principle, uh, I'm all for uh, developmental affirmative action. And if we're going to talk about how you can re develop effective policies. Um, reform institutions and so on, then that, that's where I think the focus has to be. And when we talk about things like whiteness or um, or reification of white norms and all that all that jazz, I just think it's a huge distraction. One hundred percent. Like now, you could take a community in the projects, whatever you want, inner city, or you can take a poor community in rural Mississippi. Now. What they have in common could be poverty and you know, facing some form of legacy of racism or actual racism, but their needs are completely different. You know what you would need in the rural societies, you know, community is not what you would need in something in like the inner city. So yeah, that's what I'm trying to get at. Is like okay, it's not just okay fix the education because if you can get the put the best school in the world in that neighborhood, but if there's still a chance the kid's going to get shot on the way to school. You know, they might not go, you know, or, you know, or if the neighborhood's completely dilapidated, you know, is someone going to put up a store like, so yeah, I, but that's where my problem with all this stuff was. I'm just, the more I read of it, it's like, okay, but just yelling racism and saying, fix the racism. 
I mean, you get stuff like, I mean, there, there's that article in the Wall Street Journal today where they, you know, it's an, yet another one where they want to get rid of Homer um, because, oh, we need, kids need to see something that reflects them. Uh, or, I mean, what they're doing with the schools in New York City, uh, you know, where they want to get rid of the grading and they want to get rid of, uh, like, they want to allow, like, lottery systems into the elite schools, which... I'd rather fix the other schools so that you have a larger pool of kids who want to go into the elite schools and maybe get to the point where the regular schools themselves have elite programs within them. So you don't need elite schools per se. I mean, that seems like a much better system than just getting a kid who's not prepared to go into the elite school. Getting them to go in there is not a good idea in my opinion. Well, I would say that one of my biggest concerns in all of this is, and and I think this is why I focus so much on white fragility itself, is that um, you can have very nuanced differences of opinion on, about, on what the appropriate policies, the appropriate approaches, approaches are. Um, you can raise what I would think are good faith, good faith objections to any number of is issues, such as um, the importance of teaching Homer um, while also, uh, you know, acknowledging the importance of including other authors. Um, and when these objections or differences of opinion arise, there is a tendency to want to dismiss them as ideological in nature arising from this whole, you know, reified whiteness paradigm and so on, um, you know, as you would say, just it's racism. Um, and I grant, given perhaps the emotions involved and so on, um, and, you know, people are living their own daily lives and not necessarily thinking deeply about this every day, so the nature of their objections may not be as well thought out, and then given the emotions involved, they, you know, they come out and, and you know, they, they, um, they reveal or they, they supposedly reveal bad faith intentions. But, um, but like, if somebody objects, as I do, to teaching Howard Zinn in, as a version of history, because it's just bad history, um, I very much object to the idea that this is just simply an exhibition of white privilege or, or an objection to teaching about oppression and marginalization in history and so on. That's one of my biggest concerns. But at any rate, um, you know, I, I mention all that because of what you mentioned, you know, in terms of the Wall Street, Wall Street Journal article. Uh, but um, that's one symptom or case of an even sort of broader set of concerns, which is a kind of hidebound uh, analytical framework um, where everything reduces, say, um, you know, to, to, you know, whiteness or whatever, however it's, uh, however you define it. Um, uh, and you become susceptible to cognitive biases like omitted variable bias and not considering the possibility that there's something other than quote unquote racism that's at work um, or confirmation bias that you're seeing you know, I can go into an anecdote involving Michael and Eric Dyson to illustrate that issue. Um, or like base rate problems or availability bias, which is huge because so much of what goes on in these sort of social media mud-slinging contests just has to do with reactions to what's in the headlines, which may not really reflect underlying systematic trends. I and mean, you have to really study the, the data for that. Um, so it's this broader set of concerns that we make ourselves susceptible to these cognitive biases. Um, so my ultimate interest here is thinking very rigorously and robustly about the issues and not into any kind of denialism. I think that this letter exchange, for instance, that I had this past weekend about critical race theory and colorblindness and systemic racism and so on, I think um, I, I'd like to think was a demonstration that I have no interest in denying that history has been uh, that, uh, not very kind to many communities of people, to put it mildly. 
um, and that there is such a thing as structural differences that we need to readily acknowledge um, and that you know the, the overall idea behind critical race theory of trying to sort of um, unravel rigid structures of domination so to speak you know allowing for us to sort of unpeel the onion of what this domination consists of are worthy endeavors and I don't really want to um, divert and I don't want to give the impression that they're not um, but I do think that there is a lot of room for improvement in how we think about these issues in a very robust way and I think that uh, I think scholars themselves are themselves you know are doing well um, you know in terms of their use of various qualitative, quantitative, mixed measures, research, and so on. Um, but in the larger scale, I think scholars like D'Angelo especially, and Kendi, you know, are susceptible to logical fallacies, as I try to write about. Um, but the broader public discussion, I think, really carries with it the risk of falling into intellectual disarray as a result of I had the luxury of time, so... Um I sat and I read this stuff. Okay, most people aren't going to sit there and read Derek Bell, you know, or uh, Crenshaw or uh, Patricia Hill Collins, like any any like the you know go back to the stuff before Candy and D'Angelo, like it was back to the stuff from the seventies. It's not it's not easy reading. Um, so a lot of people like you know right after the George Floyd incident, I had friends of mine who talked about just all of a sudden started spouting white fragility and white privilege my age so like you know late 40s to early 50s never read this stuff in school had no clue all of a sudden they're spouting it and then when i just walk them through the book they're kind of horrified and they're like no 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 okay i don't i don't mean that <laughs> you know it, it, it's okay so a lot of this stuff like when you say the conversation's bad <clears throat> i don't think a lot of people who are opposed to it really know what it is because they haven't read it they've got someone else's understanding of it and even a lot of the people who are pro some of the things in, you know, either D'Angelo or Kendi haven't really read that stuff and don't know where it comes from. I think there is a huge ignorance gap in this, like in the middle. So, yeah, I mean, we, you need more information out there about it, but it's, you know, like, like I'll give you an example. Like a, one thing I, one thing I read in Bell and I was in his paper serving two masters and he starts off with a really good idea. He says that they shouldn't have desegregated schools. They should have desegregated education. And, that, you know, if you think that through, that, that is logical. It makes sense. But then he just goes on and just says, no, nope, everything should have been just segregated and keep everyone separate. And it's like they start off with a kernel of a good idea and they just take it too far. And that's where my problem lies. It's that little idea of desegregating education if you actually thought about that and put some logic into it, instead of just saying, nope, keep everyone apart. Yeah, um, yeah I, I, I sympathize with the point. Um, I guess the uh, thought that immediately comes to mind is to, again, again once again, return to um, white fragility in the sense that um, your objection to a uh, kind of anointed classical critical race theory theorist Derek Bell uh, sort of becomes immediately suspect because he's been anointed and you're not and so if you're not on board you're exhibiting fragility of some sort and I think that's where a lot that, that's probably what annoys people about D'Angelo's work the most certainly is what got me started thinking about it um, uh, but yeah I'm, I, I can appreciate that point like the whiteness thing there was a meeting in Toronto, okay, online conference in Toronto that was sponsored, I believe, by the Toronto Star. And it was two South Asians and one Middle Easterner. And it was about black, uh, brown complicity and white supremacy. And, you know, basically, if you work hard, you know, work in the system of whiteness, then you've taken on whiteness and you're complicit in white supremacy and you're keeping black people down. But again, with that white Wall Street Journal article, there was a, you know, and the Smithsonian had it on their webpage for a little bit, then they took away the graphic, but the information's still there. And there was a 
online conference again in New York City for removing white supremacy culture from schools. And they're, they're talking about objectivity. They're talking about the written word, uh, punctuality, professionalism, as if these things are white. And to me, I'm like, okay, you're equating being successful with being white. So where does that leave someone like me? Like my family was an immigrant family. My parents moved to Canada when I was six. So if I succeed, I'm doing it because I'm acting white. Like, you know, for when you say reinventing racism, to me, that, okay, that's racism. That, that's racist. Like, you know, that, that, that to me is... Yeah, or reinvented into a new sort of paradigm defined by whatever people want to say whiteness is. Like, but you're also denying yourself the best tools that, you, you know, like objectivity, the written word, you know, professionalism, like you know, the, the whole list, like the, the one, uh, there, there was a paper couple of days ago or maybe a couple of weeks ago uh, decolonized physics in south uh, south africa we need a black physics like, like what does that mean you know like these are the things that have advanced mankind and led to flourishing why do you want to deny them deny yourselves that and you know racists denied them to black people brown people throughout history so why are you playing into their games like i that that's where i just don't understand where they come from yeah, um, this is the underlying sort of idea that I that uh, I have in mind when I say reinventing racism. Um, it means a lot of things. Uh, centrally, about sort of the notion of reifying whiteness as the sort of structural scaffold of racism, so that um, ideas like uh, individualism and universalism, say, which D'Angelo calls the two master discourses of whiteness, or whatever it might be. Um, I mean, the most something's been going on and going around on Twitter about uh, teaching white man science, or or whatever. Or Kendi um, and his work, uh, and, and other people in their work, you know, um, you know talking just about the uh, correlation between. Uh, I guess for Kennedy would be capitalism, but you know the whole era of exploit of uh, 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 exploration and uh, capitalist so subsequently sub capitalist development, um, but essentially the whole modern era um, is conceptualized. I suppose there are people who might object to this in a way that it's not really what it's saying, but it's, it's, it comes across as being conceptualized as ultimately foundationally rooted in the development of whiteness, a, a, a desire to instill white supremacy throughout the known world, as opposed to, um, you know, as opposed to, as history, in my opinion, works, works out, a, uh, a slew, a host, a whole bunch of just contingent, path-dependent processes um, that just sort of happen and unfold on their own without any kind of teleological design or goal um, so that you have, you know, Galileo and Locke and the French Revolution and the U.S. Revolution and so on, all themselves a result of uh, the unfolding of just dozens, hundreds, thousands of independent little path-dependent processes. Um, and yes, we have to ultimately interpret them and develop our narratives and so on. And yes, it certainly is the case that um, many of these developments were exploited in the service, or I guess you'd say in the service of um, regimes, societies, governments that were ruled by white people. Um, and so on and all of that is important to understand and study and so on um but i would say that to the extent that this is conceptualized as all being foundational to this teleological process historical process hegelian if you will i don't know if that's the right adjective um uh of establishing white supremacy, um, you know, again, in the teleological sense, as opposed to sort of what happened in terms of interests converging 
as underlying historical events were evolving. Um, and just, I, I, remind, I remain unconvinced that that's the way to get, the right way to go. Um, and the important implication or the inference to be drawn there is um, the U.S. Constitution, uh, the U.S. Revolution, the American Revolution, and so on, is a, remar a remarkable event in terms of the ability, you know, in terms of the realization of the social contract provision uh, tradition. The, you know, government uh, by consent uh, of, for, and by the people, and you know, and all that stuff. Um, and the, you know the various sort of enlightenment ideals that were um, incorporated, you know, the, realized in that um, historical era. Now, yes, of course, uh, we need to understand that um, there were great limitations in the sense that it was not realized for Black Americans, for women, and so on. Um, and we can have the debates about the extent to which oligarchic interests were, you know, a driving force. I'm not necessarily convinced that they were. But to me, 1776 is foundation. The Enlightenment is foundation. And to point out the, um, you might say, egregious imperfections in the application of the principles doesn't, to me, call into question the principles themselves. Um, in American history, and I think a great human cost, obviously, has nonetheless shown itself to be capable of self-criticism and self-improvement. Um, and I suppose that's just the way I'm inclined to think about it. I, I agree with pretty much everything you said there, but it's like, I, I don't know if you've read David Deutsch's book, uh, The Beginning of Infinity. Mm -mm. So he talks about, I mean, it was, he was talking about how we accrue knowledge, but I mean, he mentions pockets of enlightenment. So, you know, he refers to the Greeks, the golden age in Islam, uh, you know, different thought periods throughout time. But when, we, when you look at the enlightenment, like each of those periods got snuffed out from the outside. Like, you know, they were crushed and the knowledge lasted and it just spread on. But when you look at the enlightenment, you finally got to a point where, like you said, it took a while. I mean, the minute the Enlightenment started, you can't say, well, they were still colonizing. They were still, you know, brutalizing, uh, you know, when they went to the Americas, you know, the, the, the rape and the destruction of the people. Like, you can, you can list all that off. If you, if you take a look at from like, whatever you want to use as the arbitrary date of the start of the Enlightenment to now, like you said, you can see that progress. And we are the only people right now, like, quote-unquote, the West, where we self-reflect on what we've done. You know, China's not sitting there doing that. The Middle East is not sitting there doing that. They're not talking about the slavery that went on Saudi Arabia until the mid-60s. You know, like, like, there's no self-reflection in those places. We are the only place that's done it. And because of that self-reflection and because of the methodology that came out of the Enlightenment, that error-correcting, you know, and, and like you came, it took far too long. But by you know, it took a hundred years to get rid of slavery. Then it took another hundred years to get rid of Jim Crow and have the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And why not look at the progress? Like that's the one thing I get about this is, if you read something like James Baldwin and you read something like Kendi or you read something like D'Angelo, Baldwin is, I mean, he talks about some harsh stuff. He talk, you know, he's not, he doesn't cover up racism. He doesn't, you know, there's no rose-colored glasses. But there's an uplifting message, whereas these guys, it's depressing. And I mean, I don't know how a bunch of people are buying into this because it is such a depressing way of looking at stuff. I mean, you know, like why not focus on the progress? I, I, again, there's still a hell of a lot of work to be done. You are a lot better off now than you were, like everyone is, than you were, you know, even 50 years ago. I would anticipate at least quite certain almost, but that, um, I don't know if I want to say defenders of the faith, but, um, but essentially, ad, you know, the, the critical race theorists, scholars, so on, would say probably that, well, maybe not, a, definitely not D'Angelo, um, but, you know, they, 
yes, progress, but progress is not, uh, but focusing on progress gets in the way of getting, of, of furthering progress, something along those lines. I mean, that's going to be the basic idea. And um, to me, it's like, yeah, sure. But um, I think the problem is that, uh, well, there's two problems. Um, one is uh, that you risk, you risk a, an overly pessimistic um, uh, or having a, an overly pessimistic view of the world, which might then sort of start to distort your assessment of where, where we are and where we need to go. Um, the other thing is that, you know, and this is sort of getting a point that was made to be about Kendi, I think, where he talks about, uh, you know, in the past, and this is an, an obvious play, but in the past, people were fighting for progress and they were seen as too radical and too revolutionary or whatever, and then they eventually prevailed. And yes, that's true. Um, the, uh, the problem, though, is that then Kendi or someone similar wants to see himself or whoever as being that radical who's trying to move society forward. And the thing that you need to acknowledge is that there were many reformers in the past who either were advocating something that was considered radical and then ultimately failed or was eventually seen as uh, deserving of failure. And you know, one example would be Booker T. Washington, who probably gets a little bit more flack than he deserves if you put, put him in his time and place. Um, you know, somebody who was focused very narrowly on sort of economic improvement and not really sort of pushing the boundaries of um, racial development, so to speak, uh, you know, just a little too practical. Um, but, you, you know, you can sort of, you know, if you get away from presentism and whatever, you can sort of understand where he's coming from. But nonetheless, I think we all, most of us, I suppose, many of us would agree that Dubois or Du Bois, or whoever you however you want to pronounce that, W-E-B, was um, the, the greater visionary um, and that he was the one who was really, you know, pushing the frontier. And so he ended up being the, the, certain, the more, deserving, more deserving of the uh, role. I don't really, I hold this Marxism against him, but, but uh, in terms of um, what he was talking about in terms of racial... Uh, progress, you know, he was on the right train, Booker T. Washington was on the wrong train, and that's similar for many other examples in history. So just the fact that you're, you're crusading in the name of social justice, so to speak, doesn't mean that you are, uh, that you have the correct conception of social justice, for lack of a better word. In other words, we have to ask ourselves, what in fact is social justice, and is this the, the, the version of social justice, so to speak, that we think is going to advance society. And that's, again, that goes back to an earlier point where a lot of these controversies resolve around the ambiguities of the term being used. Um, uh, so, I mean, social justice, I mean, who isn't interested in social justice? Who isn't interested in justice? The question is, what do you mean by that term? And that's where you get into these debates where when somebody wants to sort of monopolize the position, you know, monopolize, want to have a monopoly on virtue and say that they are on the right side of history. Um, and I just think there are legitimate debates and disagreements that people can have about what constitutes being on the right side of history. Yeah, you know, I'm beginning to hate that phrase. Because I mean, you hear it everywhere and it's like, I, at this point, everyone's to the left of history, apparently. Because Yeah. Um, you know, or history, history is to the left of everyone because, like, you know, everyone's on the right side of it. And it's just... But, history is just, it just unfolds, you know? And you hope it unfolds for the better, but, I mean, history is not teleological in my view. Just like, just like evolution. It just happens. There's whatever, there's that school in San Francisco that was contemplating renaming themselves because they were named after Abraham Lincoln. I'm sure you can find a lot of stuff, like there's what, uh, he hung, I think, 30... Um, I think there were Sioux, I'm not sure, but like a young 30 natives, like it was like the largest mass hanging in the United States. I mean, you can find all kinds of stuff about the guy, but hundred years from now, how are they going to look at us? I mean, you know, and there's going to be a lot more records, you know, if we haven't killed ourselves off by then, there's going to be a lot more records of what we said and did than there was of Lincoln. 
And so, you know, you know how are they going to judge us 100 years from now? And that, that's, we do the best with what we have. Again, with some of this stuff, uh, some BLM groups in some universities across the state, so I think 75 of them got segregated dorms. And this is going back to about 2016. They started around 2016, and the last time I checked was like a 2018 article, and it was 75 dorms. It means some form of segregation. The KKK cheered them on. It's like, okay, you might want to pause for a second. Like that's not going forward. Like, you know, there is, that is regressing. That is going backwards. So, you know, like you said, I'm all for social justice. I'm all for anti-racism, but what they're offering me isn't, like I said, if the KKK is cheering something on, I don't want any part of it. <laughs> and I don't know why these guys do. Um, yeah. I guess in the interest of my own sort of it, I've read, reasonings or explanations as to why people do that. And I can sort of understand to some extent um, the reason that people want to have, you know, another like, uh, what is it? The book uh, Increasing Faculty D Diversity, I think, Eleanor Barber and Steve Cole. Anyway, um, one finding in that book is that I found interesting was that the uh, race or gender of a teacher um, does not factor heavily into the subsequent success of, um, in other words, role models are, they call, their findings are like role models are not really as important as we think they are. Of course, that, you know, it's subject to the limitations of the study and so on. Anyway, um, uh, there is evidence, I think, from that study and others that, you know, uh, students do well in um, historically black universities or colleges and so on, but Anyway, um, like I, I have come across reasonable accounts of why that's the case, but at the same time, I certainly appreciate the idea that you're conveying, um, which is, uh, you know, it is kind of ironic that um, you have this demand for segregated units that so-called, say that the so case KK may be cheering on, um, or that... Uh, you know, essentially increases the tribalistic um, conflicts that, you know, kind of are raging right now, um, at least in terms of, you know, wanting to be um, <laughs> tribal, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, I can certainly appreciate that. I, I had another thought that is currently escaping me, but it'll probably come back to me. Like when you mentioned like historically black universities where I, I just recently, in the last couple of months I read uh, Thomas Sowell's new book, uh, Charter Schools and Their Enemies. And I mean, he puts out some stuff that was kind of similar to Bell and he was saying that, but he said that whereas Bell said, okay, we should segregate, we should separate, you know, Sowell was saying that segregation in and of itself isn't an evil and integration isn't necessarily a good. And he was talking about schools that were predominantly black and how they were doing. And he said, integrating them because they're black when they're already doing well there's no you know it, it, like so i can get that i understand that kind of argument but you know like if you're at harvard and all of a sudden harvard's going to segregate dorms and you're going to have this dorm is black and this dorm is white and that's my issue like i mean nyu luckily this past summer um said no to the suggestion but the student union wanted to segregate dorms there again and i mean i don't have an issue with i shouldn't say issue but i mean like you know, there's always been clubs where you, you know you've had the the the, the Islamic Association, you've had you know like Af African clubs. Those things, I mean, like again, that's fine, that's all normal. But it's when you get into living arrangements, that's when I think there's an issue there. Like I said, after reading Soul's book, I, you, you don't need to force integration. But if you, you know, let's say that's a school in a black neighborhood, if you bring that school up to really good standards, white parents and might want to send their kids there because it's a good school. Not necessarily for integration, but because it's a good school. Um, but yeah, but like, like I said, the living quarters is what I, I don't understand that. It was like that young girl from the University of Virginia, I think it was last year, or the year before. She put out the video of herself. She was very proud of it. She asked all the white people to leave because they were they were making all the people of color nervous. And it was a general meeting place in the like you know it wasn't like a conference room that she'd booked or whatever. It was just open space at the university and she was proud of herself and she posted the video. Then she got a lot of flack that is reinvented racism. Like you are, you're segregating now. Like you are 
dividing by color. And if you're so worried about whiteness in a country that's 65% white, you might not want to do that. You know, I was, I'm thinking of a book uh, I've been returning back to, this Disuniting of America by um, Arthur Schlesinger from the 90s. He uh, talks a little bit about ethnocentrism in like curriculums and, um, uh, you know, these sort of ed educational environments. Um, and the idea that you can say, use uh, sort of history as a weapon, um, or I guess it more as a sort of a political instrument, but basically, you know, you know, essentially, um, doing sort of, sort of things that you're talking about. For him, it's in a context of teaching history um, that, uh, you know, gets us away from the so-called melting pot idea, idea uh, which for, for some people, you know, apparently uh, constitutes a microaggression, which frankly to me is nonsense, but, uh, my own view, I guess. Um, and I mean, you know, I want to hear people out and I want to hear their, their reasoning and I can usually end up, you know, if you're, if you're honest with people, I think if you're genuinely on, interested in trying to uh, connect with someone in terms of understanding their point of view, I think, you know, they'll eventually be able to see that you want to actually know where they're coming from and then you can end up learning from them. So I don't want to be dismissive entirely uh, out of hand. Um, by saying, you know, calling melting pot uh, a microaggression is nonsense. I do think it is, but I would still necessarily hear out somebody's case, and I probably end, would end up disagreeing with it. Um, but anyway, similarly, um, with respect to, say, segregated residential houses and so on, I mean, I guess the, 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 my, my own personal view, which is not really an analytical standpoint at least at this point um is that it's unfortunate uh i don't know i grew up in uh diverse communities you know, the city man you know the, the streets the city and so on um track and field for eight years so uh, track and field is more black sport than white sport at least in my experience uh, d'angelo would scoff at all this but um you know because you know just being in new york doesn't mean that you're not racist or whatever i mean i understand the point that she's trying to make what the point I'm trying to make is not that, you know, it doesn't, uh, you know, it's not the I have black friends argument. It's the, um, the idea that I just generally took it for granted as a good thing that I was able to interact with a lot of dif different ethnicities and races and people from different regions of the country and, and whatever. And I like the idea that, you know, I, I like the idea of say walking into a black church on a, Sunday morning and just seeing, you know, being a part of it um, and hoping that I, you know, I uh, used to be engaged with a Puerto Rican woman. I like going down to Puerto Rico and being part of that culture, uh, you know, to the extent that I could participate. It's just, you know, the idea that I was, that I needed to be conscious of, I mean, I, I, mean, I they, they call you a vaso de leche, you know, you're 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 obviously a gringo, so to speak. But um, and I just kind of laugh. It's just you know, it's fine. Um, but I do. I just think it's unfortunate if the if the if the perspective emerges that it's not okay for for somebody to assume it's or to want to um, I don't know participate in cultures or whatever that are not quote-unquote their own so to the extent that that that's what emerges from all this i think it's unfortunate you, know, you had it recently again i think it was some chef put out something about some korean food and got blasted and you know tried to cancel them because it's cultural appropriation i'm like it's all cultural appropriation there's nothing that you're doing right now i don't care you know like my family's from india my parents like love listening to Indian classical music, but guess what? Some of that came from somewhere else. It's not an Indian thing specifically. Like, you know, it's there is no culture that's purely untouched. I mean, unless you find 
like some remote tribe that's never gone out, you know, like that tribe that killed that missionary last year. Uh, you know, like unless you find some tribe like that, there's going to be no culture that's gone around that's been untouched. And uh, this whole idea of appropriation, why can't... Yeah, again, if you really want to try to be uh, complicated about it, I suppose, look, uh, you know, I think a lot of people who are seriously concerned about are probably coming from the perspective of history of imperialism and exploiting things for profit and blah, 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 all that stuff, you know. Um, and, I mean, look, I, I think it, it, it's sort of like scholarship. You don't want to plagiarize, plagiarize, plagiarize someone's work and call it your own, or you don't want to not give credit where it's not due and so on. I mean, it's just big, quote, unquote, common sense. Um, but if somebody wants to, you know, I don't know what it is, like a, if a white person puts their hair in cornrows or, you know, something, I don't know, something like that. I mean, I, I just, to me, I don't see the problem. I don't see why it's a problem. Um, yeah, uh, if, you know, and even, um, like, there was a controversy some years ago, I think Lionel Shriver gave a speech about cultural appropriation and literature and so on, and the idea that, you know, you're always sort of trying to get into the the mind of a character in order to write about the character mention some kind of party about people putting sombreros on or so on like i mean if i go to a party and have tequilas and wear a sombrero i just i fail to see how that is regressing society and how that is perpetuating uh inequalities i just don't see it um I mean, I see the, the article, the ar argument would be that somehow implicitly this is conveying messages about superiority and inferiority or whatever. And I, I just don't buy that argument. It, it gets a little much. Um, look, I don't want to keep you too, too long. Um, you know, thanks for your time. If you've got any last words to say about like some of the fallacies in white fragility or anything else at all, uh, let people know where they can get a hold of you. Go ahead. Well, I, I mean, I could certainly talk for a while about that. Um, but no, uh, I appreciate coming on. I, um, uh, it's uh, obviously a topic that's on a lot of people's minds. And to the extent that I had anything to say about it, hopefully people find it somewhat interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, I think reinventing racism, quote unquote, what I call is a... Um, it's it's a problem um and i think it most manifestly finds its most one of its more problematic well one of its more problematic manifestations is the theory of white fragility oh well thank you so thanks and thanks everyone for listening i'll be back